we're bringing Australian true crime live to Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne this July. And I have to tell you that Brisbane sold out already. Good for you, Brisbane. So we've quickly added a second show. Now, we can't keep adding more shows, so please make sure you get your tickets. Our special guests are forensic criminologist Santhi Mallet in Brisbane and Sydney and the one and only Charlie Bazina in Melbourne. There'll be a QA, and a of course, so you can ask your own burning questions on the night, but you have to book quickly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. This is a reissue of an interview we conducted about a year ago with journalist Chris Johnston about the book and documentary he and Rosie Jones created about the story of The Family, the Australian-based religious cult run by Anne Hamilton Byrne. Anne died in a suburban Melbourne nursing home last week and I was able to speak to former detective Lex DeMann about that yesterday. I've uploaded that new interview but I thought I should reissue this one as well for background. right at each one of you. You are the initiate. You are the cosmic being. Under the influence of LSD, Wan had this vision that she's got to collect all these children from birth. We've received the call. And great things will be done. I'm wondering if you've got any comment to make now about what happened to the children. 
Investigations are underway into a religious sect in Victoria known as the family. The sect was made up of professional people who worshipped Anne Hamilton Byrne as Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form. 28 young people went through our hands. Why did you do that? I love children. That's the trailer for Rosie Jones' documentary, The Family about the Australian cult of the same name. It's a companion piece to the book, also called The Family, written by Rosie and investigative journalist Chris Johnston. Together, Rosie and Chris have created a breathtaking insight into the cult, its crimes and its charismatic leader, Anne Hamilton Byrne. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Emily and I sat down with Chris Johnston recently to learn about how this group was able to infiltrate Australian institutions like hospitals and the Victorian Education Department, all for the sake of one woman's bizarre obsession with children and lust for money. So she was born uh, Evelyn Edwards. She was born in 1921 in Sale in Gippsland. Um, at the time, Sale was a, literally a, a farming settlement with one street. Um, her mother was a, was a uh, pom, um, her f- who was a, um, a paranoid schizophrenic who spent 30-odd years in asylums, as they were then called, in Victoria, and died in one, um, and was given that diagnosis upon her death. Uh, that's one of the sort of many things we found out about Anne's backstory while we were researching it. How her, old was Anne when her mum died? Um, so she died in the late 50s, just as Anne was getting going, so 30, late 30s. Okay, so she'd spent her entire life, 30-year life, uh, with a mum who had an undiagnosed, very serious mental illness. Well, the thing is she hadn't spent much time with her at all because her mum was packed off to institutions. Right. Um, and so, so for such long periods of time that Anne was raised by someone else? Uh, yeah, in orphanages and mm. sort of on her own with her siblings. Her father, meanwhile, was from sort of inner-city Melbourne um, and um, was also flaky. Um, went to both war, both great wars, World War One and World War Two, um, which seemed to have changed him. And he sort of became, when he came back, became kind of itinerant and left the family, um, as in his own family, not the family family, which didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, he he basically legged it, and was was found at one point when Anne was little in Port Ferry, which was a long way from where the family were living. Um, she spent time, Anne spent time, or Evelyn as she was then, spent time in Brighton Orphanage um, and various other places. Um, we found evidence of her going to a primary school in Sunshine when she was eight, so uh, late 1920s. 
which is a western suburb of Melbourne. Yeah. So she's moved around a lot. I mean, it's one of those stories where if the story were to stop there, we would feel terribly sorry for this girl. This is a, a hell of a childhood. She had, she had a, a, an extremely dysfunctional childhood. Her mother, um, part of her mother's mental illness... Um, we think was the sort of delusions of um, spirituality. So mm-hmm. her mother was someone who claimed to have her own Tibetan guru, who claimed to be able to speak to the dead, who held seances, was into mediums, and also um, is remembered as someone who set her hair on fire in public, in sale. Oh. Is there any suggestion of abuse in Anne's childhood, given that she was an orphan, moved around a lot? No, um, except for, I guess, the kind of emotional abuse that comes with neglect and dysfunction. Mm, Yeah. Wow. So she grew up to be a very beautiful um, young woman. When did you say that by the time her mum died, when Anne was in her 30s, she was already up and running? What do you mean by that? Well, she... What happens between orphanage... And the family. Well, she she disappears off the radar for some time um, in around the 1940s. Um, she got married quite young, um, and we we found out that she, um, as early as sort of sort of immediately post-war, so late 40s, her and her first husband were already planning to adopt a child or children from Barnardo's in Sydney. They lived in New South Wales at the time. Um, That was curtailed when said husband died in a a car accident um, in Bathurst. So, again, that seems kind of... If I'd heard that story, I'd think, okay, he's a person who was orphaned and has compassion for other children uh, without families and wants to help children in that way. That's what she's always said, mm. that she that she wanted to help the children and that she loved the children. Um, so sometime between the late 40s and the late 50s, that's when she reinvented herself. That's when she sort of transmogrified from Evelyn from Sale into an yoga teacher, a spiritualist, and started to gather people towards her. How do you do that? How did she do that? Well, she did it through her yoga. So yeah, we've all had great yoga teachers, but I mean, <laughs> what makes you want to hand over your children to them? Or, or was whatever? she in How the hills you? at that stage, up in the Dandenongs? Um, she was just about there. Yeah. So what happened was, um, she seems to have um, become a yoga teacher in the sort of mid to late fifties in Melbourne. So that in itself is kind of remarkable because yoga was a very new phenomenon then. Um, and she was in fact uh, mentored by a woman called Marguerite Segersman, who was the, I guess the, the, the sort of the person credited with, she was Swiss with credited with bringing yoga to the West. And she was in Melbourne for a time as well. Um, and Anne set up as a, um, as a yoga teacher in Turak and Geelong and also South Yarra, um, mainly in Turak, in church halls, uh, late 50s. Um, so, you know, the Menzies kind of era, post-war sort of suburban Melbourne. Um, pretty conservative. Very, very conservative. Um, and from all accounts, she was a very good yoga teacher back in those early days. But sometime in the late 50s, she began to, 
she began to sort of manipulate um, who was coming to the classes and the kind of treatment she gave them. So she started targeting wealthy Jewish women at first. They were sort of the 60s was sort of dawning. People were looking for new ideas and new things and different kind of religions and different ways of life. And she started very slowly to exert control over a small group of women. And... But wealthy women. Wealthy women. She ta mm. she targeted wealthy women specifically. And she started to get in their heads and started to um, offer them more than yoga. She started to offer them this kind of blend of sort of spiritual beliefs, which continued for the next 30 years in the cult that she formed. In around uh, 1960, a very important thing happened, which was she, by then she, she had this group of people around her um, and she'd figured out how to sort of infiltrate um, Melbourne society, so the upper echelons of society, and she'd begun to um, kind of attract enablers, people who could do things for her. And she targeted this guy called Dr Rainer Johnson, who was the... Um, headmaster or master of Queen's College at Melbourne University and he was a professor of physics and he was from Leeds and he'd been headhunted by Melbourne Uni in the 1930s as a sort of a marquee signing for the for the uni to come out and head up Queens. Sounds like a pretty marquee signing for Anne as well. <laughs> yeah, so she he, he was a very eminent physicist um, but by the time he got to Melbourne, it was kind of going to be his last job. Okay. Um, but he was here for quite some time. And um, eventually Anne found him, um, we think through his books, because by then he'd moved from pure physics into metaphysics. So he'd stopped writing about atoms and stuff and had started writing about spiritualism, karma, um, religion, alternative religions, um, and he'd also started writing about this idea of of um, of a guru, of a master who can who can lead you through life, which you know was a sort of for him probably a blend of sort of Buddhism and Tibetan beliefs. And he'd also come through that period in the UK where they were into into seances and Ouija boards mm. and, and all that. Anyway, so she came across him. Um, and literally um, turned up at his house on the grounds of Queens one day in 1962, just after Christmas, and literally knocked on his door. We got his diary, so we know this to be true. Um, and um, by then she'd got a bit of intel on him from uh, a man who she was having a kind of on-off relationship with, who was working on the grounds of the university, first as a gardener and then in catering. And this man had um, told her all about Rainer and about his sort of daily movements and his, and his plans for the future. And she, um, she bamboozled him with her knowledge of his life and he believed that she could see the future. Oh, no. And that fitted his growing beliefs about gurus and alternative religions and spiritualism. Mm. And um, a couple of months later, literally, he was taking LSD in the Dandenongs at her house and writing in his diary that he thought 
that she was Jesus, as, oh. as she was beginning to say by then. Wow. So that, um, that gave her growing group a veneer of respectability because he was an eminent man. He was respected in Melbourne. He was hanging out with the people who were involved in setting up the modern Liberal Party. He was going to the private clubs. He was friends with a fellow called Ambrose Pratt, who was a very influential um, writer and editor in Melbourne at the time. Um, so she she sort of finangled her way into this very um, influential group of of men, really, and um, and um, he was able to do two things. One was to bring people to her, and the other was to give her group, which by then was fully into LSD, not quite child stealing yet. That was yet to come. It, it gave it a, it gave it that respectability, and people thought that it was fine because. Rainer was involved. When, when was there a sense that there was a bigger plan coming together for Anne? When, when did she start sort of buying the property? When did the group get a name? When was all of that happening? Well, very early 60s when Rainer, when Rainer was lured in um, was when she was when her yoga, when she'd sort of transformed from a, from a, from a yoga teacher into a spiritual leader and mm. um, she starts saying she's Jesus. He starts she's, agreeing with her. Yeah, she starts getting hold of the LSD, which is a whole mm. other story. Um, they set up a little chapel in um, in a sort of shed, really, on Rainer's property at Ferntree Gully. And um, shortly after, they start building a, a sort of a church over the road, which is still there. Wow. Um, and he... Meanwhile, is doing kind of lecture tours and whatnot and speaking at things like uh, CAE, Council of Adult Education, at schools and stuff. And a lot of people are going to that and he's, and he's, he's bringing people to her. Wow. And it's getting like a real air of uh, authority, I guess. And, and is this when the money starts being made, when she's building property? By this stage, yeah. So she's she's by this time she's also people are people are giving her money, mm. um, and she's also starting to um, essentially steal money or defraud money or uh, falsify documents through a lawyer uh, who she had um, lured into the cult as well with his then wife, a guy called Peter Kibby. What sort of money? Where's she stealing money from? Um, just through dodgy real estate deals, through this lawyer who was who was falsifying documents for her, we think that's what happened anyway. Donations. Don't forget there are there are a lot of wealthy people around the group at this time. Mm. There's there's you know lawyers. There's um, there's you know she she really loved white collar people. Um, it's that mm. thing of attracting enablers. So. Sort of by the by the early to mid sixties, she had um, her own lawyer in the cult. She had her own real estate agent. Uh, she had an architect, and she had a bunch of psychologists and psychiatrists who were um, uh, able to secure the LSD, which um, at that time was legal in, for therapy in Victoria if you had a a license. Um, now. 
She also, by this time, had control of a psychiatric hospital in Kew, Ooh. a place called New Haven, which is still there, but it's a private home now. It's actually just been sold for $10 million. It's a wow. beautiful Victorian mansion. But back then it was, a, it was a hospital, private psychiatric hospital. And she had three psychiatrists working there. She was floating around there. She was recruiting people from there. So people... How did that happen? How did she get the authority to be... Floating around a sounds so loose back then. Oh my doesn't god, it? that's it's unbelievable. Like... So I guess were the doctors followers of hers, or yeah, pretty much everyone that worked there were followers of hers, and the place was owned by a cult member as well. Wow! And she was quite at this stage. Um, she'd physically transformed a bit, hadn't she? Had she started to get the plastic surgery? She was quite a striking woman. Um, what what was was that part of her ability to bewitch these men? Uh, yeah, so she, she bewitched um, men and women with her beauty. I mean, there's no doubt she was incredibly glamorous. Mm. Um, she was a, an, early adopt, an early adopter of the plastic surgery thing. Um, she used to go to a place in Kew near New Haven called the Cotham Clinic um, <laughs> for facelifts. Um, and... Um, that was quite a scene at New Haven, wasn't it? They were giving patients LSD. Yeah, so people with mental illness, they were giving them LSD and um, encouraging them through their trips. I'm reading in the book, encouraging them to think about certain things, and in that way, it became a recruitment ground as well. Yeah, so LSD was legal for therapy. So if you um, if you had a license, you had to get a license through the Victorian state government. To Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. Have you ever taken LSD? Yeah. Same. Now I. I feel left take, out. I used to take a lot of acid in my late teens. And when Lex Demand says, he's the investigating officer, says in your book, um, you know, everyone would be dosed up on the drug. She'd wear a billowing white dress, shine a few lights around and bingo. People would think she was Jesus. I can relate to that. <laughs> I can understand how that could work. Like, it's a pretty powerful setup she's got going here, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, it's really important to know that the, um, how the LSD was being um, sort of um, um, given to these people. So um, at the time, there were 19 uh, psychiatrists in Melbourne who had these state government licences to use it for therapy. Oh, wow. And three of them were cult, and they all worked at um, New Haven. Um, and in fact, the guy who uh, headed the state government committee to approve or disprove the licences was cult. Oh, wow. That's an incredibly powerful nexus. Um, so the stuff here. was coming in in liquid form from, from Switzerland, from the same laboratory where Albert Hoffman first discovered it in 1949. They were getting it straight from there. It was, it was coming into Sydney in, in, in little ampules. And then so it was good gear. It was extremely good gear. There was also synthesised um, uh, mushies, so psilocybin. Uh, they were using a lot of that as well. Um, and she... So not only by now did she have lawyers, real estate agents and architects, but she had compliant psychiatrists who could fiddle the, 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 the system and get LSD for her. It was all coming into New Haven, but it was being funnelled up to the Dandenongs to... to um, to homes, specifically one home um, of, a, of a, one of the psychiatrists. 
um, which of course was you know a massive breach of the of the regulations that they were supposed to adhere to. I would think that giving um, it to children was a pretty big breach as well, but they were doing that. Well, they they were giving children sedatives to keep right. them keep them quiet, but when they turned fourteen, they started giving them LSD. Yeah, teenagers. Um, so that's when the whole kids thing started coming in. So um, we think it was probably about nineteen. Uh, 69, 70, 71, when she first started fiddling the um, the um, adoption set up in 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 hospitals in Melbourne to 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 steal children from women from single women who at that time were you know you got to remember that single mums and pregnancy and you know family shame was it was a completely Mm. different sort of setup then so there were hundreds and thousands of unmarried women giving birth in hospitals like the royal women's and box hill and others we'll hear about the process by which anne ended up with other people's babies after the break Coming up on Australian True Crime, Chris tells us about the time he visited Anne Hamilton Byrne in her suburban aged care facility. But first, we hear about the terrifying influence she once had in Melbourne hospitals. So what was the process by which Anne got involved in that? So let's say, for example, uh, one of the babies who went through this process was Sarah and Sarah Moore, and we'll come back to Sarah. She's significant to the story for a lot of reasons. So she was born in 1969. Her biological mother was an unmarried teenage teenager. Uh, this happened in Melbourne. So how how does Anne infiltrate the system and get access to this baby? Because she had enablers within the hospital system and the social work system. Wow. So she had doctors, nurses and social workers in those hospitals who would tell her when something when someone was coming in um, and where and where the where there might be an opportunity. Specifically, she had two social workers who were working in the in the adoption um, scene, who who were able to tell her exactly when and where these opportunities might arise. And so it was teenagers come in about to have a baby, get it, on the phone, tell Anne. It was literally a case of, and and this is hard to believe, but a baby. Um, such as Sarah would be delivered by a cult doctor, attended by a cult nurse, and um, taken or sort of documented or whatever by a cult social worker. Um, so there were there were cases of kids literally handed to to these people in hospitals and then literally ha- literally walked down a corridor and handed to one of Anne's henchwomen. In the in the hospital, who had come to take the baby away? It's like something from a movie. Like you oh, can't believe it's happening in yeah. Melbourne. Um, yeah, and again, terrifying. This often happens on this show. It's hard to believe it's not a very well known yeah. story. The facts of the matter that that our medical system was infiltrated mm-hmm. by a person like Anne Hamilton Byrne mm-hmm. so recently. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Well, at first the kids went up to various homes in, in the Dandenongs and by then she um, she had a sort of little enclave in um, in Fernie Creek, centred around one particular street in Fernie Creek where she lived. And she had, um, she had cult families living up there. So the women 
and their husbands who were sort of lured into it um, bought property up there at her behest because she wanted her people to live around her. They had this little meeting place at Rainers and they had this this chapel over the road which called the um, Santa Canetan Lodge, which they'd built, um, where they met twice a week. So they had a strong presence up there and the kids were up there to begin with. But then sometime in the early to early 70s, they, they um, got this property at Lake Eelton, mm. um, sort of two hours away. Um, basically a sort of a fibro uh, lake house and that that became the centre of operations for raising the children as cult members. Is that Kai Lama? Yeah. That's Kai Lama. So it's... Um- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Lots of space and isolated. It's yeah. the sort of a place where people maybe had holiday houses, things it was of that a nature. House, yeah, yeah. So there's not a lot of prying eyes around. No, there. it was beside the lake though, and the and and it was, but it was behind trees, mm. but it was quite remote, dirt roads and stuff. So um, by by sort of seventy three, seventy four, the kids were split into two groups. Um, one with a so-called Hamilton Burn kids who were all up at Lake Eildon, 14 of them. So by, by the mid-70s, there were sort of 14 of them there and they were the ones that got their hair dyed blonde and they were given fake names with the Hamilton Burn surname. And then there were another 14 who were called Fosters and they lived at various houses in the Dandenongs and they, they used their own names or other names but not Hamilton Byrne and they didn't get their hair dyed and they were usually the children of cult adults. 
after the break, we delve into the complicated world of the aunties, the women left in charge of the cult children. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Chris tells us about his visit with Anne Hamilton Byrne. But first, the day-to-day lives of the cult children were exposed when two of them escaped and sought help. Chris tells us more. Well, they all sort of watched over by the aunties. These were the women who worked for Anne, and, and they were very present at Kailama. Yep, so the aunties were a group of sort of three or four or five um, rusted-on cult women who mainly hung out at uh, at the Lake Eildon house but also had a presence in the hills, mm. and they were the sort of disciplinarians. They 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 were... Whatever they did before, they were made to become nurses. So they were doing um, two weeks on, two weeks off at hospitals. So two weeks working down in Melbourne somewhere. Then they would bring bring their money back and come back to Lake Eildon and and, uh, look after the kids. However, they did not really look after them very well. No. What what sort of discipline was used on the kids? Um, Severe physical abuse so um look it's really important i think to and one conclusion that we came to during the during the sort of making of all this and the research was that the aunties or the disciplinarians were victims as well so they were they were women who were um who were lured in by Anne and were and and became trapped. I mean, they were they were women who were economically trapped and emotionally trapped and physically trapped and sort of spiritually trapped mm-hmm. as well. So, even though they beat the children and hurt the children and starved the children and drugged the children, I think they were also victims of Anne, um, and that victimhood sort of led to them punishing them in this way. I mean, they were they were. Um, <clears throat> the girls in particular were in particular were starved um, around body shape and weight. Um, they were they were all um, hit with canes. Um, there was a three cornered cane that they were hit with a lot. They were hit with um, shoes and heels. They were um, dunked in buckets of water um, till they nearly drowned. They were sort of locked away. Um, and, of course, they weren't interacting with the outside world at all during this time. They, the cult set up a school at the, at, the, um, at the lake house. This is one of the most incredible details to me, along with the infiltration of the medical system. Mm. Um, the Victorian Education Department came out and, and checked out the school setup, didn't they? Correct. So they, they, there was a cult guy who's still alive called Leon Dawes who was a teacher at Croydon High and he, he was cult and still is and so is his son. Um, his son's very important to the whole setup now, Geoffrey Dawes. Um, Leon um, was a sort of an uncle at the lake house and he, was, he became their teacher with his wife. Um, who was also a teacher in real life? Um, he was he was taking books from Croydon High up to the school, um, and um, it was kind of an unofficial school. But then they decided to set up 
and register a school. So yeah, you're right. At that point, they had to be, be supposedly be monitored and 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 registered and all that with the Victorian government. And um, as part of this, we got hold of some files um, by the actual schools inspector who came to visit the school. And he was full of glowing reports. He said um, that the kids were intelligent, which they were. Um, Sarah Moore, in fact, said that, who went on to become a, a doctor, mm. said that um, the, the actual schooling, the book schooling, was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, however, mm. the kids there all had the same surname and were dressed outlandishly in Anne's choice of clothing for them, which was velour or gingham, a sort of Baroque, sort of weird clothing. Um, they had dyed hair, they acted strangely, but they sort of put on this veneer of sort of happiness when the inspector came. And his reports back to the government found nothing wrong. He didn't think any of that was weird or worth No, he didn't. Room. He thought it was marvellous. Oh. Unbelievable. And Sarah, I always remember Sarah from, I think, was it in the 1990 60 Minutes did some stuff or Anne and Sarah were in the media a bit. And I remember as a teenager knowing, oh, yes, Sarah, a doctor, all this was happening in the hills. But then it did go kind of quiet until, you know, your investigations and Mm. a bit more interest in it. Well, I suppose the the point was, I mean, Sarah, she was was called... um, well, Sarah Moore was her was her real name, um, and she, along with another cult girl, called whose real name is Leanne, but was called Anna in the cult. Um, they 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 were the they they eventually led to the cult's sort of undoing because um, Leanne escaped, and Sarah was thrown out, and on the outside world as sort of seventeen year old girls they cooked up a plan to um, talk to the police. And How bizarre was the outside world for these girls at 17? Um, well, very. Mm. Um, but probably not as bizarre as, as the inside You think, the inside you think they, the they realised But pretty... they all, they've all struggled. I mean, mm. Sarah's no longer with us. She, she, she died just as the book was being published um, well, Sarah had... Um, she was only in her, aged in her 40s. She had uh, drug issues throughout her life, would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, she, she... Yeah, she... Look, she... Um, when she left the cult, she... Um, she's very bright, very intelligent. She got into Melbourne Uni Medicine, became a doctor, um, went, went and worked in the third world as a doctor mm-hmm. in refugee camps. Um then came back to Melbourne and set up, um, and her but her past sort of came back to haunt her. Really, um, she was incredibly badly treated by the cult when she was in it because she was sort of the oldest girl and she was she was Anne's favourite, which meant that she got the harshest treatment. And she rebelled, didn't she? Um, she started. She got a bit argumentative as a teenage girl, as we do. Yeah, but she. I mean, her 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 memories of that of the LSD that she was administered are just horrific. Oh yeah. This is over in England. I mean, we're talking, we're talking monumental doses of very strong LSD for for weeks at a time. 
like not just single doses, mm. weeks at a time and like brainwashing and all that. And she, um, when she was doctoring here in Melbourne, she started prescribing uh, pethidine to herself and ran into issues with that. And her mental health was very poor and she tried to commit suicide and um, messed it up and lost a leg as a result of an injection that she gave herself and was then confined to a wheelchair and then it sort of sort of went downhill for her after that and she she ended up dying of of some kind of heart condition uh, a couple of years ago um, but she's she's a heroic figure in this story mm. um, and so is Leanne who who also kind of rung the bell on the cult. Leanne physically escaped from the lake house. I just I find it extraordinary that they had the courage at 17 to go to the police already. They were just out and the world must have been terrifying. Um, but they went and they rang the bell. Eventually they did. It wasn't quite as simple as that because they were traumatised. Mm. Um, don't forget, also in 1987, the police finally raided the house. This was after, um, just after Sarah and Leanne had spoken to them. The coppers had been up there before several times but had found nothing wrong. The federal police had been up to look for a girl that was missing, did nothing. It was on Victoria Police radar for ages, did nothing. The local police would have the local, been aware up in the hills of, you know... I the guess local of the, police were aware of it. Yeah. In fact, a, a local... Um, a local policeman in um, at Lake Eildon helped Leanne when she escaped. Oh wow! Um, still, nothing happened. Then, you know, a year later or something, they raided the house and freed the children. And but Anne was long gone. She was by then. She was a multi-millionaire, and she had homes all over the world. And she was um, in um, in the Catskills near New York in her mansion there. So what did they find when they freed the children? Were there criminal charges or criminal yeah, criminal charges pressed around that time? Did they find any criminal activity going on there? Um, no, not at the time. Um, there's a, a long and complex sort of backstory with police action around the cult. Um, some of the aunties were charged uh, for document fraud. Um, there were no drugs up there, mm. um, and the feeling was that they, that because the children that were freed were so traumatised, they were a bit younger than Sarah and Leanne. The oldest would have been fifteen, so they would have been, you know, between twelve and fifteen. Um, one of them was basically skeletal, a young girl. Um, one of them was um, by then um, had issues around a brain injury. Um, around some treatment that he got up there by by one of the cult men. Um, the feeling was that the kids needed to be looked after rather than sort of cross-examined on what had happened to them. Okay. So they were put in state care and then sort of slowly sort of adopted out or, 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 or helped to find their own families or helped to sort of settle into their lives and, and thus began the... Um, the chase, the police chase. So after years and years of inaction by state and federal police, Vic Pol finally 
um, gave um, the other hero of this story, Lex Deman, um, the the imprimatur to set up a, a squad, Operation Forest, dedicated to dismantling the cult and laying charges on the guilty parties. And he was um, very dedicated. I was lucky enough to see him speak after a screening of mm, the documentary and mm. he uh, broke down in tears as he spoke, uh, certainly as he spoke about Sarah. Um, so let's talk about his investigation. I mean, how does one attempt, when this woman's got a 30-year head start by this stage mm-hmm. and she's a multimillionaire and she's living overseas, where, where do we start? Well, he started with um, Peter Kibbe, the lawyer who I mentioned before. Right. Peter Kibbe had left the cult by then because he, he, he'd, he'd grown sick of the manipulation just to fill you in, Peter Kibbe had um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He was a man who who showered for hours and hours, and um, that's how he got into the cult in the first place because he was see- he was getting psychiatric treatment for his troubles. He was oh. still a functioning solicitor in mm-hmm. Melbourne, but he was mentally ill, um, and he was the one that enabled through the sort of glory days of the cult, gathering the children, gathering the properties and the money, he was the one who was either uh, falsifying the documents or having them falsified, Mm. right? So then he leaves because he's just jack of it after 20, 30 years of manipulation and guilt and doing the wrong thing, he left. So Lex and his police mates thought, He's the key that can unlock the door. Yeah. Let's find something he's done wrong that we can prove, which they did. They found a document that he'd falsified and they proved it to be falsified and they went and arrested him. He was living in a country town by then as a, as a country lawyer. They arrested him um, and convinced him to tell all, which he did over three months of daily interviews at St Kilda Road Mm. in, what, late 80s, early 90s? Wow, that long ago. And he he provided them with basically everything they needed to know. So it's important because the cult leader said she was Jesus and she controlled everybody in the cult controlled everything to do with their lives and one thing that she expressly disallowed was betrayal in fact the cult had a mantra that she made up which is sort of like a biblical sounding paragraph that they all had to recite at their little meetings that was all about betrayal don't tell anyone about me don't talk about what you know don't share the knowledge that I've given you. Don't betray me, right? Mm. Peter Kibbe spectacularly betrays her to the police, which was quickly followed by one of the aunties, Trish McFarlane, who had also left and nicked off to the UK. They tracked her down and she did the same. And then then they had allegations of, of physical abuse, emotional abuse, drug administration, kidnapping, false imprisonment, document fraud blah, 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 but they couldn't find her, so they had to go find her. And that's when the international sort of manhunt or womanhunt mm. began. 
And were international authorities helpful? Was Yep, so they had Interpol in the UK, Scotland Yard, and the FBI in the United States because they knew that she had a bunch of properties in, in the UK and Hawaii and mainland United States. Mm-hmm. So they got all those agencies in because they, they had to extradite her, they had to find her, then they had to try and bring her back, which they did. So it was 1994 when Lex Deman and his task force finally managed to bring Anne and Bill back to Australia, to extradite them back to Australia. Yeah. And it was quite a, as is always the case in these situations, so much going on, but it's a very specific case that they finally managed to bring them back on, isn't it? Yeah, it's bittersweet. So they only got her on minor charges. I mean, the headline is they, 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 they were able to extradite her, but because of, because of vagaries between US law and Victorian law and because of this notion that they didn't want the kids cross-examined on, even though it was, you know, 10 years later or whatever, mm. they, they, they didn't want them cross-examined on physical, emotional abuse. Um, they could only bring them back on very minor charges. So it was conspiracy to defraud and commit perjury by falsely registering the births of triplets. Yeah. Oh. That's yeah. what they got them on. Yeah, so that was the only way they could extradite them. And Lex, if you ask Lex now, so did it succeed or fail? He would, he would say that it, it succeeded because he, he found her, mm-hmm. got her arrested, mm-hmm. got, her on a, her back. got her on a Qantas back to mm. Melbourne, mm. got her into the county court where she pleaded guilty. Now... For him, hearing her say guilty, even though it was a charge that wasn't going to bring her a jail term and, in fact, only got her a $5,000 fine, I mean, some might argue that that was a complete failure of the justice system. But he, given the context and the circumstances, he thinks that it was probably, on balance, successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was the undoing of the cult. They, they started to... to I mean, she, she talked big after that. She, she said she wanted to go around again and get more kids and have another crack, but she never did. Um, she was quite elderly by that stage too, wasn't it? It's she'd like lost she was, her, she'd she was, lost her looks. Yeah, she, she was ageless forever. She weird facelift, like faceless She was ageless yeah. forever, and she'd then all of a sudden her, she was a very elderly lady. She'd lost her looks and her power. Mm. Um, great story about her arrest, though. So they had the... Um, they had the FBI on board, and there was an FBI agent called Hilda Hilda Cogat. She's in the book, um, and she was the she was heading the little FBI operation. Once they'd found out that she was that Anne was in residence at the house in the Catskills, um, and they found that out because Anne made a, a phone call back to Melbourne to Sarah, and Sarah dobbed her in. Um, they started staking out the house and Hilda um, uh, disguised herself in a mail van. She got in the... Because in the, it's a rural area where the house was and she got in the mail van with the, with the rural mail delivery person, not dressed as a policewoman, obviously, and went and looked at the house and put mail in the mailbox and then waited to see who, who would come out. Um, and then a couple of days later they raided the house when they knew for sure that Anne and Bill were there early in the morning and um, 
Anne was um, startled, didn't have her wig on, wasn't dressed properly, <laughs> um, was demanding all this time to get dressed, and they just hustled her off to this sort of jail uh, at a place called White Plains near New York. Um, the straw that broke the camel's back was um, uh, someone in jail was murdered next to the cell where Bill was being held, mm. and he freaked out and at that point said, I'm out of here, let's go home, let's just cop it sweet. Ah. And she um, she agreed. And by then they'd sort of negotiated the, the charges down to these minor charges. Anne had a QC, um, a very eminent Melbourne QC, um, if they tried to lay charges around the drugs or the abuse, they would plead not guilty. The kids who are now young adults would have to be cross-examined by this silk, and they decided not to do that, which was a sort of kind of humanitarian decision rather than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got her back. Um, but she walked out of court, paid her fine, and scuttled off back to the hills. How many members are there now? Oh, well, they don't do anything anymore. They're not recruiting. There's okay. no, right. There haven't been any new members for years and years. Okay. Their, their, their church is falling into disrepair. They still own it and the land, however. The people who still follow her are either extremely old, i.e. in their 90s, mm-hmm. or around 50. There's only a handful of them. I'm, you know, they claim that they still meet at the lodge, but we, we don't think they do, and their neighbours don't think they do either. And certainly from going in there and having a look at it, it didn't look like it had been used for a long time. Is there a lot of money still? Yeah. How much do you reckon? Do you have an estimate? Oh, uh, well, yeah, we sort of said, um, we were saying between 5 and 10 mil. Okay. And recent inquiries have um, confirmed that. In yet another bizarre twist, a current cult member offered to take Chris to see Anne in her suburban aged care facility. This is how it went. He took, he literally just took us to the nursing home where she lives and introduced us as friends of his. It was this little old lady um, sitting in a chair um, because she had so many facelifts for so long, her hairline is at the top of her head. Oh. So her her hairline is sort of almost going backwards on her head now. Mm. She was beautifully dressed. She had um, pearls on, um, immaculately dressed, beautiful little slip-on shoes. I'll never forget the little slip-on shoes. Tons and tons of jewellery on her fingers and round her neck. Um and in her ears, um, but just sort of like in a vegeta- vegetative state. Um, who dresses her? Is there someone from the cult who, who goes and does that, who cares for her? I don't know if the cult way? member dresses her, but I know, I, know, I know that a cult member goes in and gets her dirty washing and takes it home and, and um, washes it and brings it back all folded. Okay. And I guess we were there for an hour or two, and she was... Um, drinking one of those milk protein drinks through a straw mm. on a little tray. And um, she had a um, plastic doll, which for some of the time she was cradling. 
which was incredibly disturbing. Mm. I believe that's quite common uh, for female dementia patients it to is. be given a baby mm. doll. It is, but this is a woman who stole babies. Yes. Mm. Yes, mm. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Incredibly yes. disturbing. Yes. Um, also disturbing was the fact that evidence of her life as a cult leader was all around her in the room. So photographs of the children, mm-hmm. photographs of her husbands, particularly Bill, lots of photographs of herself. Um, and then beside her bed, I saw something which gave me the prologue for my book, which was a print of The Last Supper. Mm. So... Here was, a, here was a woman who positioned herself as Jesus and forbade betrayal, but in the end was spectacularly betrayed by those closest to her, just like Jesus. Chris Johnston and Rosie Jones' book The Family is available now, and the excellent documentary is also available on iTunes. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Please take a moment to give us a nice review and please encourage your friends to give us a listen. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com We're bringing Australian True Crime live to Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne this July, and I have to tell you that Brisbane sold out already. Good for you, Brisbane. So we've quickly added a second show. Now, we can't keep adding more shows, so please make sure you get your tickets. Our special guests are forensic criminologist Santhi Mallet in Brisbane and Sydney and the one and only Charlie Bazina in Melbourne. There'll be a Q&A, of course, so you can ask your own burning questions on the night, but you have to book quickly. 